0: What is up, Asymmetry? How you all doing? Had the pleasure of sitting down. Good friend of mine, fantastic bonsai practitioner. And we've been sort of bumping into each other on the international realm of bonsai for a number of years now. And I've always been curious to sit down with Gil and ask him, what was it like being a pilot and the demands of uh, heavy travel and life and pursuing bonsai at the highest level? uh obviously we venture into a lot of different conversations it was a good one thoroughly enjoyed it and uh you know and exploring all aspects of this art form and what it takes uh, is what it's all about so sit back relax and enjoy hey ryan what's going on gil how are you man
1: uh what's going on man <laughs> i had to shovel my way out of the driveway this morning
0: So I saw on Instagram, Walter Paul's post uh, of his trees just covered in snow. Did you guys just get obliterated?
1: Uh, Yeah, I, you know, I I looked at the weather report. That was part of my job anyway, was weather, you know, and I lived with it for about 40 years. I said, I don't like this. So I took everything the other week out of of the greenhouse because it was over 20 degrees here. Yeah, And, you know, it was starting to heat up. And then I said, eh, I don't like this. <laughs> I put everything back in the garage. <laughs> like, everything's piled up. It's just, just one of those things, you know? April weather.
0: Unbelievable. Yeah. Is this common? Uh, I mean, where are you at in Germany?
1: Uh, you know where Nuremberg is?
0: No, no. My, my general reference would be Berlin or Munich.
1: In, in between Frankfurt and, and, and Munich.
0: Okay. Huh and uh and and april can be pretty variable for you out there
1: pretty much so yeah yeah we we get some nasty weather but i really wasn't expecting in march over i mean we had 25 degrees of weather i mean i was i was outside in the garden doing in in, in a t-shirt and shorts
0: yeah yeah <laughs> that's crazy
1: ton. yeah yeah so are all uh, your I, deciduous
0: I was, already leafing out then
1: yeah everything's going poof. Yeah. No <laughs>
0: options. No option. I mean, you got to do the bonsai shuffle. That's what it is.
1: Yeah. It's like one... Uh, I forget who it was you were interviewing one time. Uh, they said, what what we do for bonsai is just incredible.
0: Oh, absolutely. It's crazy. It, you know what it is? It doesn't make logical sense to most people that you would spend this kind no, of time and doesn't. effort... Uh, <laughs> you know struggling with the survival of these trees in these tiny pots but it it there's something about it that is is just quite uh addicting
1: yeah yeah i mean it's a lifestyle it's definitely a lifestyle
0: yeah now now how long have you i mean we've talked about this as we've seen each other on travels throughout the world H- how long have you lived in germany
1: i've lived actually off and on i've so I started here in the military in 78, mm. went back home in 80, went back to college then to finish up my degree, and then uh, came back in 86 with Pan Am. Because, mm-hmm. uh, well, I was a couple of years, spent a couple of years in the Air Force here in Berlin, and uh, I really liked it, so I wanted to get back, and that was my best chance of getting back was going, going with Pan Am because Pan Am at that time I actually was hiring after about uh, 10 years of a non-hiring hiatus mm-hmm. and uh, so got with them and then funny enough after two years in Berlin with, with Pan Am they decided to call it quits and they wanted to either send people back to Miami or New York and with two small kids at the time I said and New York certainly didn't didn't impress me and Miami was too expensive for the money that that I would be making there, yeah. So I decided to look for another job because everybody knew that Pan Am was going by the wayside anyway. I mean, we we had co pilots there. I was a, I was a flight engineer on the seven twenty seven. We had uh, co pilots in Berlin that were sixty years old.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: So you know, you you know, it was going nowhere. And uh, then I decided to go to another company called Air Berlin at the time. Then I stayed there for a few years until the wall came down and then Wait, you were there when down.
0: the wall came down
1: oh yeah I I lived holy in holy shit during the during the wall time in 78 through 80 uh I worked for uh I was attached to uh 69 electronic security group and what we did was it was it was uh attached actually to the NSA so it was a listening post there in, uh, in West Berlin. Mm. We had about three different listening posts there, three or four, can't remember now, but two of them were attached to the Americans and the other ones were British and uh, French, the Allies, you know. And uh, so, yeah, we lived, lived through all that. And then, and then when the wall came down in 89, uh, I knew it was all over then because the company I was working for, Air Berlin at the time, we were attached to what they call craft civil reserve air fleet. So in case anything had happened to in Berlin, we would be attached to the military and then we would get all the people out. Mm -hmm. And, uh, then after the whole wall thing came down, uh, then the, the military decided, well, we don't need you anymore. So your protection is gone also. And, I knew it wasn't going to last long with Air Berlin either, and then I had a chance to go with uh, Lufthansa. So I went over with that, and that was the rest of my career then.
0: Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Holy cow. Uh, where where in the United States did you grow up? Where, When you said you came back from the military, you came home, What's home? what was home?
1: Uh, Florida. Oh, okay. I grew up in St. Pete, Florida, uh-huh. where it's really hot, I mean, except for three months out of the year. <laughs> yeah. It's 100% humidity, Well, life and, without air, and, nothing.
0: And now you have snow in April, right? So like, <laughs> you, you, you did it. <laughs> it. Couldn't be any better, could it? Jesus. Oh, that's amazing. That's amazing. What? For, for, for fear of sounding ignorant, when you're saying there are uh, three, three listening posts, listening to what? what th- th- is this like uh listening phone conversations like uh, uh distribution of communication what what were you listening for
1: you, you name it we listened to it uh, most mostly the east German stuff uh-huh you know because the East Germans had a couple of military airports around there also, so we'd be monitoring all their radio transmissions and everything and uh, you know this thing a couple of years ago we had uh, when when uh, Obama was in office. America got a little pissed off at Obama because the NSA was listening to her phone calls. Oh hell, we've been doing that for since since the end of the Second World War. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah. So what's the big deal now? I, I never could really understand, understood that. You know. Yeah. Jesus.
0: Could you imagine? I mean, I, I it seems like your perspective of this it would be and is definitively heightened. But to because you obviously understand the breadth of, of what is listened to and heard. Um, but could you imagine being one of those high, really uh, high political figures or world leaders having to think about every single thing you say, even in the privacy of your own space a, a, as, as public knowledge? I mean, that is, that's pretty hardcore.
1: I mean, obviously we've got some politicians that don't really think about that too much now. <laughs> right, right.
0: Yeah, but <laughs> I, I, isn't everybody destined to fail in that at some point? I mean, you're going to screw up, right? You cannot be a perfect, flawless human being, especially at that level.
1: He's <laughs> got a fault.
0: Ugh. Yeah, it is, We're but, only human. Yeah, imperfect is, is, is the nature of the game.
1: Yeah, yeah, really. You know, it's just... a. It, it, it's really incredible the way that all worked out. And then after the wall came down, it was just like, it's nothing, you know, I went out there, went up to visit uh, some friends a couple of years ago in Berlin and went to go visit the old radar site that I worked at. Mm. And, uh, it's still there, you know, but, uh, obviously nothing's going on. It's just kind of a tourist attraction up there now. Yeah. But it, it that needed a top secret secret security clearance to get in and, uh, I mean, nobody was getting in. Nobody was getting in. Nobody was getting out. I mean, it was, it was top security. there. But uh, yeah, all, you you'd never know any of, that, any of that stuff happens now.
0: Interesting. Interesting. Now, when the wall came down, did the, 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 the two sides uh, merge fairly seamlessly? Or was there a lot of divide after the wall came down and, and challenge in that uh-huh. reintegration?
1: Oh uh, well, yeah. That, that's that's really a good question you're asking. I mean, it's uh, when the wall came down. I, rem- I remember Helmut Kohl. That was the old uh, uh, console that we had at that time. He said, "Don't worry, it's not going to cost you a single penny." Right. Well, they put a tax on us since 1990, and that tax was only supposed to last for five years. It's been going on for 30 years yeah. now, and they just dropped. This year, and uh, the, the west Germans were pissed off at the east Germans because the east Germans never paid into the secu- uh, to the uh uh, uh the, the system for retirement or or anything like that, and then the east Germans were pissed off at the west Germans, and it, it just goes back and forth, and there's still a little bit of it there, you know, it's, it's gotten better. I uh I remember one of your podcasts, I remember. Somebody was saying, was it that you got a piece of the Berlin Wall and it was fake? It was made in China?
0: (laughs) Oh, it wasn't me. It wasn't me. But I remember somebody saying that they had experienced that. Yeah. I can't remember who that was.
1: As a matter of fact, (laughs) next time you come over to the trophy i'll give it to
0: you oh my gosh that that would uh that would be over the top I, I mean it's it's a really you know because i remember uh being very very young and not knowing what all of that meant you know in the world uh as a whole and and uh yeah the the fact that you were there is crazy the fact that you spent um time in the air force now do you feel like flying in the Air Force and the military sort of the next step in a career is to pilot an aircraft for an airline or or something like that?
1: Well, not really. Back then it was, but it uh, this day and age, it's not any longer. I mean, uh, even even coming out of the military at that time, the FAA didn't really uh, uh, approve, or, or they didn't see it. They didn't want to approve the military license, so you had to go get your licenses again, ah. and that's that's why I went to an aviation university called Emerald Aeronautical University in Daytona Beach. And uh, when I graduated from there, then I had all my licenses. Mm-hmm. But uh, I mean, flying in the military too. At that time, we were flying trash and ash and ass and trashness missions. That was like between Berlin and Frankfurt, and a couple other things. And you didn't have that many hours and to get a lot get with an airline you needed 3500 hours yeah and when you got out of the air force maybe you had about 800 hours so you still had to go build time right and and that's probably that's problematic i mean a lot of people think that in the airline industry uh you just step out of school and you step into a glorious airline job and there you are well that's not it i mean when i got out i had my what they call the CFWI. It's a certified flight instructor instrument rating. So that you go teach for a couple of years to build some time. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember the guys I graduated with, they all, most of them had uh, backpacks, tents, and, and sleeping bags. And they went from city to city to go get jobs and possibly sleep outside. Because when I was working as a flight instructor, I was only making $5.25 an hour. Sleep
0: outside? Was- what? Are you serious? Oh, yeah.
1: Well, at five dollars and twenty five cents an hour, you're not going to get much.
0: Unbelievable! And 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 they just wanted to be pilots that bad.
1: It's the glory of aviation. Wow. I, remember I remember when I started uh, at the university. The the dean of the university gave us an introduction speech, and he said, "Guys, guys and gals, excuse me." Uh, You know, it's, it's the mid eighties or early eighties at that time. And that was at the time, I mean, you're pretty young. So I don't know if you remember this, uh, president Reagan, he fired a lot of the controllers because they went on strike. Yeah. I was too young for that. I don't remember. That that put the airline industry industry into a really kind of a tailspin. And there were guys getting laid off all over the place and there were just no jobs. Wow. Wow. And dean of the university said, uh, "Can't promise you a job when you get out, but if that's what you want to do, that's what you want to do." I mean, he, he gave us a good speech, but all of us that were there, I mean, if you want something in life, you just got to stick with it. It's just like you going to work with Mister Kimura; nothing was guaranteed either.
0: Yeah, yeah, very much so. Yeah, that's that's interesting.
1: You know, and when I I remember after I got my CFII had my all my certificates, my my university degree. I went from what they call FBO, it's a fixed based operator, from small airport to small airport. I went to this one small uh, operator, and I went to the gal at the front desk, and I asked her if there was any jobs, if they needed any any flight instructors. She says, well, go talk to Pops outside, appropriately named Pops. I said, where's the He's He's uh, under the cowling of the Cessna 152. Work on it. I go out there. This guy, old guy in greasy overalls with a cigar in his mouth. I mean, it's <laughs> it, it's like Hollywood under under the cowling of a of a Cessna 152 with oil and gasoline, aviation high octane nice. aviation fuel. Yes. <laughs> <I'm>, <laughs> And, and he he looks up at me, and I've got, I've got my tickets in my hand. He said, my wife just went to go get toilet paper the other day. I don't need any of that stuff. Uh-huh. He says, can you do the job? I said, well, I think I can. He said, be here Monday morning. And that was it. And $5.25 an hour, and there were three other flight instructors there. And I learned how to play chess and blackjack.
2: Nice.
1: <laughs> your $5.25 an hour at flight time. Ground, ground instruction, which, which consisted of an hour's worth of uh, pre-flight instruction, was free. It, you didn't get any money for that. So it was only flight time. And if you got two to three flights a week, which lasted about an hour to two hours, you were lucky.
0: Wow. Jeez. That's crazy.
1: So I was starving. That's I was starving. Crazy.
0: Was it where I, so, so are you still, are you still flying right now?
1: No, I, I gave it up in 2017 in uh September 11th, 2017, I turned 60 and I gave it up and that was it. I retired after that. Mm-hmm. So you said so. And I'm, I'm, you know, the whole COVID thing, I'm glad I did because I got, I still got a lot of buddies that are flying. Yeah. And they're they're taking a hit really
0: bad. Well, I was going to ask you. yeah. I, I mean, I, I do remember talking about you retiring the last time that I saw you in Europe. I did we see each other at the trophy? Was that the last time that we saw each other, or did we see each other prior to well, that? Last time
1: we saw each other, you did the demo. Yeah, the trophy. You that's right. It was worth it. Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and 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 so you know i you had you'd posed a very interesting discussion which was you've spent all this time flying but you've been an avid uh, and passionate bonsai practitioner and uh, and so you've been gone a lot of the time while you're still caring for your collection i mean wh- when did you start bonsai and how did you get into bonsai while being gone so like being in the air so much and and out like you know, existing in this very transient career.
1: Well, I, I started bonsai around '96. My my wife <laughs> decided at that time that I needed a hobby, and she got me. I think it was a small maple out of a out of a catalog somewhere,
2: and I I yeah I,
1: I yeah I just put it to death. You uh-huh. know, it was six months thing but it still interested me you know because she said i need needed a hobby i said yeah well okay so i got some books like cole lewis and and those guys and uh then i started to take some courses and stuff and i got into it and and yeah here i am today is the typical way of of going down through bonsai Mm -hmm. uh but being on the road so much it's not easy let me tell you uh because you know, I, I remember one time I was in, uh, in Singapore just after I moved here. I used to live in Nuremberg. Now I'm living up in, in Franconia, in pretty much in the woods, like where you're living in, in Portland up there. Oh, nice. And so I've got two neighbors. And when I'm gone, my, my neighbor used to water for me because I've, I've tried everything. I've tried the automatic watering systems. And, you know, I mean, when, you, when you've got 80 trees or so, you know how that is. Yep. Uh, and I remember one time I was in Singapore, and it was matter of fact it was in April. Had all the trees outside, took them out of the greenhouse, and then I looked on the. I'm sitting down, waiting for the crew to come down. We were. we're I'm just sitting down having a gin and tonic. I'm looking at the weather on my on my cell phone, and I saw minus 12 degrees, and I just went, "Oh no, oh, <laughs> man!" You know, you know. And there was there was one Cortegus that that uh, I had sold, but it was still in my garden. And that you know, with minus ten or twelve degrees, you know what that does. Yeah. So, but I, I saved the tree anyway. But uh, yeah, it's 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 tough when you're on the road. I mean, I I've got a good neighbor who watered for me at the time, but it's just not the same as is doing it yourself.
0: No, no, not even not even remotely close. I mean the. The level of intimacy you have with your own trees you can't expect somebody to take that on or even begin to understand those small subtle nuances i mean but it but it really is an added layer of stress when you are gone because you have these things that you care for i mean it's like having you know any other thing you're responsible for that you're thinking about and and, and having that constant apprehension that something's going to go wrong while you're away right yeah
1: yeah i mean i had uh i remember My other neighbor, when I was living in Nuremberg, he was watering for me, and, uh, you know, he would just do it, okay? He wasn't really great at it, but it's better than nothing. It was Mm -hmm. better than watering. And I had uh, an azalea that I was going to put in the show, and it was just perfect. I mean, it was in bloom. I came home. He forgot to water, and you know what happens then to an azalea. Yeah. A couple days without water, and I just tossed it in a bucket. I, I saved it, but I mean that was it for the that was it for the show. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah,
0: and when you and and I think the thing about it too is you know you work so hard to get these trees up to a level, but the more and more refined a tree gets, the farther the fall from grace when when a mistake yeah. when a mistake happens, and that's I really. Um, you know, as, as I've gotten to know you, as we've seen each other, because we really have have seen each other sort of across the globe at, at bonsai-related events. I remember yeah. being in Italy with you uh, a few times. I feel like... Yeah, with Kevin. Yeah, yeah. The, obviously, the trophy. Um, and just thinking about, you know, with your career, wow, that that is a very intense... You know, when I came back from Japan, I had the garden and I was traveling nine out of the 12 months a year. And uh, and it was just a really gnarly burden to bear because trying, yeah. to, trying to build a garden, trying to make the best trees we can as bonsai practitioners and not being there a majority of the time. It's like y- you really do. It is really a roll of the dice. I was... Uh, yeah,
1: who 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 was it on your podcast that that, uh, that had a workshop there in Chicago and then had to drive all the way back the the entire night back to uh, Colorado to put all the trees back? Oh, in the Todd,
0: yeah, Todd Schlafer. Was, yeah, yeah, uh, it's uh, yeah, and I think the Western United States is pretty. It can be pretty up and down as well, especially along the the ridges. You know, whether it's the Sierras or the Rockies, can be pretty gnarly. I mean, I don't know how people. I don't know how todd does it as a traveling professional in the front range because that is such a wild place to try and and consistently grow high-level trees but you know the colorado colorado boys seem to be getting it done you know and and the uh uh dan and steve the backcountry boys in wyoming are also figuring out a real complex complex climate but but I, you know, moving to the Pacific Northwest, I thought there would be some grace in that weather. And I think there is to a large degree a fairly considerable amount of grace based on the climate here. Uh, but I remember being in Massachusetts and the person watering for me at that time, this was in my third year of traveling, third year out of my apprenticeship, uh i got a phone call one night i was in massachusetts and she said i i uh crashed my car into the front of the liquor store and i'm not going to be able to show up to water tomorrow <coughs> and it was uh it was like late august early september is going to be 95 degrees the next day you know i got mm-hmm. on, oh i got on a train i got on a first train to get to jfk to try and get a flight out i got home in the late afternoon and and barely saved everything. I mean, it was, it was roasty toasty. They were bone dry. Everything was wilted. It was, it was as close as I've come, but you know, you're a pilot, you're out there. You can't just be like, I got to go, you know, you have these flights that I'm supposed to pilot. I got to go home early. That's not an option. You just have to kind of take, take the brunt of the force.
1: And the worst part about it is where I live. I wasn't really expecting it when I moved up here. I built a house, and got a nice piece of property and, you know, just mainly so, I have my thing for bonsai, and uh, but the weather is pretty extreme here. It gets down to minus 20 in the, mm. in the winter, mm-hmm. uh, Celsius, and can get up as high as plus 40. Oh, no kidding.
0: Uh, no kidding!
1: No so kidding! It's extreme. It's extreme here. Yeah, yeah. so
0: 40, 40 degrees Celsius, high 90s, low 100s, uh, minus 20 degrees Celsius is, um. Teen, somewhere around teens teens are yeah. potentially single digits right yeah. yeah yeah so you get you you have a very wide now would do you consistently get temperatures that cold and that hot on an annual basis no, it doesn't but you
1: you just have to watch out for it we call it we call it the uh siberian franconia uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. yeah that's not what it is yeah you know and uh, i mean it's a beautiful area but i mean there's there's pros and cons to everything, as you know. Living in, in where you're at with the rain, yep, you get rain until what July or so. Uh,
0: yeah, uh, I mean, uh, you hope that you get uh, every year is, is a little different. You can we can get rain. I mean, and and just gray, gloomy, nonstop rain until July. Uh, currently, you know, it stopped raining um, probably three weeks ago, and and is in the mid sixties. Uh, you know, right around sort of your teens low 20 degrees celsius temps and uh and there's a strong chance that it'll go back into rain and just be an absolute catastrophe for disease and fungal issues and trees that were repotted but every once in a while we'll get a year where it'll just kind of continue to to move forward and diseases at a minimum and you see the trees evolve at the you know greatest rate in those years you try to maximize those years uh, to get the real progress but it's it's debatable every year is debatable for us.
1: Yeah, I mean, at least in the wintertime got my, you know, I I didn't have to keep a check on it too much. I mean, Mm -hmm. you know yourself, you gotta water in the greenhouse or whatever. But it it wasn't that bad when I was on the road. At least that that kept me a little bit calm. But as soon as things started budding out, that's that's when I started to get a little antsy when I when I was flying. Yeah. You know.
0: That's when everything changes.
1: Had a neighbor, well, I still got my neighbor here but he, he would watch things pretty good, pretty well for me. And he would water whenever he, he, he watered two, three times a day. If, if need be, he'd always come out. So he was, he was like a watchdog. And, uh, I mean, when you got a good neighbor that'll do that, uh, that's great. You know, but, uh, it's not easy. Uh, I, I do remember when we were talking about the flying thing. I remember, uh, coming back from japan one time coming back from tokyo you got somebody ringing on you there
0: yeah uh the the uh <laughs> so we have a pretty generic flip phone for our office phone here at Mirai. Oh. We, we don't lean a whole lot on on uh you know correspondence via telephone for business but we do try to be responsible and uh the ringtone on it is atrocious uh, <laughs> so, so you got to enjoy a little bit of uh, a little bit of old school flip phone Americana right there.
1: Yeah, yeah, okay. But anyway, what I was getting into, or I I've been to probably about six or seven Coca and and uh, one co. We we always, on that long flight to Tokyo, we always had three in the cockpit. Mm-hmm. You know, so we'd have a couple hour break. So I brought back with me, uh, I I was shopping at the green club and I bought it into a column and, uh, one of the co-pilots was interested in it. And and one of the flight, flight attempts, they couldn't imagine what, what I could do with it. Right. So I happened to have some wire on me and some tools that I bought there and in the cockpit, I did a demo.
0: Nice. Nice.
1: So that's something you don't see every day.
0: That's badass. Did now? Uh, you said you've been to the Kofu several times, and and sort of you've been to bonsai v- events all over the place. Was bringing trees back a co- like a common thing? Was that just part of the gig?
1: No, uh, that was kind of tough because uh, I don't know how it is in the states. There, uh, I know how it is in California. If you want to bring anything in, mm-hmm. I mean, it's they don't they don't let you do anything. Yeah, but here with. Becking is is that it go on, that it goes into quarantine. So what I would do is I I wouldn't get anything big, and I'd have my suitcase not filled with clothes, but but with items. Nice. Let's just say.
0: Yeah. 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 I've this is this is one of the major mechanisms of transport for you know bonsai trees post World War II into in, into the United States as well. A lot of military personnel and pilots you know brought bonsai back and and yeah. started that that practice i mean i think
1: yeah. But at that time also the restrictions weren't as were as bad as they are now i think
0: it was pretty loosey-goosey at that point yeah i think it was a little bit more everything goes
1: yeah because uh i mean what what's still i don't know if it is in the states but what's still banned here is the the uh, the black pines
2: yeah mm-hmm.
1: and some other stuff uh Prunus is, is also banned, mm-hmm. but you know, I mean, you, you could kind of get those in, if you get in your suitcase, you're all right. If they find you, that's a problem because they didn't check us all the time. So uh, when the crew got out of the aircraft, we got into a bus and then we went by customs and if you had anything to claim, to declare, then you had to get out, fill out a form. Then we would go to operations, and in operations, there was always a chance of customs coming in there and checking out your suitcases when you got off the bus, also. So if you didn't declare it, then, then you were in trouble. Then you got a fine and you were banned from the airport for at least a month.
0: Oh, wow. So
1: that was kind of that, that would have been the job.
0: Right, right, right. Well, I, I, and it feels like Europe is still relatively. Uh, open to importation, definitely compared to the United States. I don't, I don't have any, you know, sort of awareness of where what the, where the restrictions lie here. But I know that the imported bonsai model in Europe still seems to be, uh, you know, an aspect of business that a lot of brokers and bonsai people are moving forward with. Is is that still the case, or is Germany a well, little bit different? How does that well, work?
1: On one one of my trips over to San Francisco. I went up and uh, visited uh, uh, Zach and Bob.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, my idea was to get some of those Redwoods that they have and import them over here. Yeah. And I'm glad I didn't do that because I did bring one back with me in my suitcase, and we just don't have the weather for it up here. Yeah. it was. Not, I remember a couple of years ago, I wrote to you, to try and get some information on the redwoods and you told me what to do and it just never worked out here
0: yeah yeah uh to, to the degree where that it's 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 non-survivable or you just have to work so hard to keep it alive that it's not enjoyable you just got to keep you just got to
1: work so you, you can keep it alive that's not the problem but every time you did something to it you know one branch ended up dying off yeah sprout off from the trunk you get a new one it, it's like every year you'd have to redesign the tree yeah and i said no, no, this is not going to work. And I'm, I'm glad then that I didn't import them over. I went through the whole importation thing. I could have done it, but then also with the quarantine, they, they, it's got to be put into quarantine for six months.
0: Oof. Quar- quarantine you don't have control of.
1: You don't have control of it unless you've got a container yourself to do it. And I don't have the property to do that. I mean, you know, with the money, you got to stick in to do, to do something like that. And... Yeah. To be quite honest with you, I don't know if, if Walter. So I mean, I, I at, at, at the risk of uh, yeah sounding too negative on it, Germans don't really like to pay too much for trees. And if you put into to buying the tree and setting them over here and putting them into quarantine, you're losing money on it. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. So you
0: know? I mean, but that's fair enough. You know, as a business model, it as a business model, it didn't work. I mean. When you look at when you look at bonsai throughout Europe, uh, it seems like it seems like Germany is starting to, uh, you know, Walter's always been a very prominent personality in European bonsai, uh, and and there's a few other few other I would say German bonsai practitioners that are uh, that are at all the shows, uh, con- continually displaying their work and stuff. But Germany as a bonsai sort of culture and community isn't isn't, at least at the European events that I attend, isn't as widely represented as some of the other cultures. Why do you think that is?
1: Yeah, and that, that's really unfortunate, I think, uh, because, I mean, you can see the, the, the Spanish, they've come a long way. Yeah, big time. The
0: Spanish blew up. Way.
1: What's that?
0: I said the Spanish really blew up in terms of their skill yeah. set and their abilities. They, I feel like the Italians prior to the Spanish were kind of, um pushing the envelope and and then the spanish came along and just took it to that next level but but again high tide raises all ships uh there is some really young tremendous talent in germany uh coming up the museum the heidelberg museum the curator of that uh facility seems to be a real talent i know michael tran is a is a tremendous talent and and generation bone size an event that is starting to gain traction uh oh, yeah. You know, the magazine, uh Bontai Art is stunning. I think as a publication in the international bonsai community, it's it's one of the most beautiful publications out there right now.
1: Yeah, and and you know, there are some really good trees here in Germany too. I mean, if you go to some of these gardens, you, you wonder where a lot of these amidor's have gone? Well, they're going into these gardens and there's some fantastic material. I mean, I I work with a guy that doesn't live too far away from me here. Uh, he's got some really nice stuff, Mm -hmm. but he refuses to put it in a show.
2: Yeah, Mm -hmm.
1: And part of it is really, you know, I've I've thought about this. I think really Colin Lewis termed this a a few years back when he was still pretty much active. You know, if you go to the States and you put a tree up for exhibition in the States and you ask somebody, what do you think of my tree? They'll say, oh, that's a great piece of material. Wow, you really did a nice job on that. Germans, on the other hand, will critique it from the apex down to the table that it's standing on. They'll just tear it down. And I I, I think that is also part of it that, that people don't want to put up with a critique.
0: Yeah, it's painful. That's painful, man. You put your time and effort and heart and energy into a tree and somebody just dismantles it. That's brutal. I mean, they just
1: they tear it down. It just tear it down right into being sick.
0: <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's brutal. That's brutal. I mean, yeah. it makes sense, but the but the garden culture and the the natural element. I mean, I've never spent uh, any time in Germany. It is definitely one of the places I would love to go. Um, but when you see the kind of established garden culture. And the environment seems to be, although you're telling me about a lot, a lot of uh, extremes. Germany is obviously a very big country with a lot of uh, geographic diversity, but it, it does seem to be be a very um, pastoral kind of uh, environment to cultivate bonsai in. I don't know if it is or not. Um, seems like a good place. Well, Lush vegetation must be a good climate.
1: Yeah, I mean, the uh Originally, you know, when Bonsai started out here in, in, in this section of Europe, uh, most of the guys that, that started this thing out I mean, like Walter Paul, uh, Hans Kastner, Lena, P.S. Nota, and stuff like that, you know, they, they really did a lot to bring this into the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, bonsai into, into Europe, they, they're, they were really the, the initiators of this whole thing. And you know, they're I wouldn't say dying off or whatever, but they're becoming more quiet with everything that they do. I mean, Walter especially. Walter used to be really active uh, on the demos and stuff. And you know, he's getting older, so he's getting a little bit more quiet with his things. But uh people like Pius Nota, you don't hear from them anymore. Uh Hans Kostner, you don't hear from him anymore I either, unfortunately. And these were all really good guys that that uh uh, brought bonsai into Germany and made bonsai what it is here in Germany but like I said I, I just think that I mean I'm, I'm I'm on the judging committee here with the uh, 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 with the bonsai club Deutsche in Germany here and uh, I keep asking the guys have you been to the trophy no mm-hmm. why not that's where you need to go to look at different trees not just they just want to stay in their own country. They don't mm-hmm. want to travel out too much and I, I think that's a shame because there's so much more to see. I mean, being in six or seven koga foods, I mean we're not going to get those type of trees over here that's I mean that's clear, but there's good examples where you could further your knowledge there.
0: You mean you're not going to get those kind of quality trees or those species of trees?
1: Well, wow, those those species, whatever you know, or or that quality. I mean, because I mean, my understanding of a lot of them are handed down anyway. I mean, how old are some of the trees that you worked on?
0: Yeah, well, you know, I mean, that's a really interesting question because I think, I think when when you consider bonsai in Japan, although there were a lot of trees that survived World War II, there also were a lot of trees that did not. You know, World War II was a pretty big uh, transitional point for Japanese bonsai. So, if you consider that, you know, there's a lot of trees that have been made uh, post World War II that are, are famous famous trees. Now, you always knew when you put your hands on 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 an old tree or a famous tree or a historic tree in Japan because there's such a provenance that follows those trees, and rightly so. Um, but I was always really inspired by the fact that you know, looking at the old um, Mr. Kimura books, the three Japanese editions of his of his books that eventually were translated into The Magician, one of them was anyways, you know, you're looking at a body of work that happened over the past, you know, 40, 40 50 years. And that's really yeah. interesting to see those trees now. Um, and that's, that was encouraging to me, because then instead of sort of feeling like we were never going to have the capacity to achieve that kind of result the provenance is going to take time to build but i do see in europe um trees that are starting to take on the kind of age and merit that, that you see in japan they're just not we're just not quite there yet right not in that abundance not not with those really prominent pieces that exceed that kind of time frame although there are old old trees in in europe um but it's also different it's just different because you you do have those different species and those different you know, the imported model in Europe also changes that because some of those older trees or imported trees are a part of European bonsai now. I mean, Luis Vallejo has a lot of those pieces as a backbone of his museum and his own body of work within Europe, which is a phenomenal, you know, and wonderful international compilation of incredible bonsai. So it's, it's you know, Europe is is a real pivotal place in bonsai culture in the world for all of the intermeshings and and cultures in such a concentrated area.
1: Some of that, some of the best material I've seen has been coming out of Spain yeah Mm -hmm. in the last year without a doubt and everybody wants some of that material but the problem that is I mean you're we we can't get that material up here because it's also not going to survive without some type of winter protection yep yep or and that's the big problem with it. And any of the stuff we do get up here that that is for sale, a lot of it is like like the junipers, the sabinas. They're they're the male species, so they'll end up blooming, mm-hmm. <laughs> and they've got these long, scraggly leaves on there, you know, the needles. So you end up having to graft them with with Itoikawa. And how long does that take? I mean, in in our environment, and you've got to have a greenhouse. So we're talking at least seven to ten years.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah
1: you know, and, and a lot of people don't want to put that. I don't know whether they just don't have the knowledge or they don't want to put that work into it. Mm -hmm. I mean, I I see a lot, a lot of times I go to my club here once a month. I mean, in the last year it hasn't been active because of COVID, but uh, I mean, people come in there for workshop with really with sticks and they, they won't put the money out in to buy any good material mm-hmm. and that's also the problem well what's you
0: know? what's the what's the state of uh you, and you just kind of mentioned without you know during the pandemic uh it wasn't as obviously active what's the state of the pandemic in in germany right now are are things pretty shut down or are things opening back up or is there optimism is uh, there pessimism shut, down. shut down are shut down
1: are they to a lockdown i mean i haven't had a workshop all year uh-huh i mean I'm talking since, since we shut down last, last year in in March. Yeah. And uh, I usually have uh, Kevin come over once a year to do a big workshop uh, here in the area for me. And we've had to cancel that out twice, Uh, canceled out Uh, Morrow. There hasn't been anything that's been working around. So basically people are working. Restaurants are closed. Fitness centers are closed schools they open up two weeks and they close back again yeah it's a real catastrophe yes yeah. as, as far as and uh you know sometimes you think i, I mean actually that that i see you i'm, I'm like overjoyed I, I get to see another <laughs> human being. the zoom meeting man, that's hard.
0: yeah <laughs> yeah well i so so when you started in bonsai in europe I mean, you you were talking about Pius, you were talking about uh, Harold uh, Lehner, you were talking about uh, Walter Paul in his prime. I mean, you have had a snapshot at kind of what I would consider to be a very golden age of European bonsai. Uh, Hatsumi Terakawa, oh, yeah. the rise of the uh, of the Ginkgo Awards. Uh, I mean, you've witnessed a pretty brilliant, snapshot and, and you've talked about a narrative arc where those older guys aren't necessarily in it as much i mean it really is you know southern california and even northern california transitioning of an era of of, of sort of bone bone-sized supremacy in the western united states and potentially continental north america when john naka and that whole crew was down there and then it kind of moved north to kathy shaner and boone and dennis makashima and mossy mizumi all of that when, when those generation, generations shift, you really do kind of have a lull, but there is inevitably that next generation that comes along, which is, again, where, where I see Germany at right now, right? Like, I think there is good young talent there. Uh, oh, there's
1: a lot of young talent here. But you've there seen really
0: this is. arc occur on in multiple countries, and you've been right in the middle of it in in Europe and being at the major European exhibitions. You've had a really unique oh. opportunity there.
1: You know, a lot of a pro- lot of the problems have, have really also stemmed from from this whole EU thing when the EU came into you know in the early 2000s. Mm. Uh, the, the whole we, it's called shame. and uh, a lot of the best stuff actually at that time came out of Switzerland
2: mm-hmm.
1: in the beginning with P.S. Nota and everything, and those guys down there. Uh, and what what changed? I,
0: uh, what, chi- what changed? What changed?
1: Well, uh, Switzerland didn't go into the EU. So anytime, I, I remember the last show I went down to in, uh, in Switzerland, I think it was, uh, uh, must have been about 10 years ago or something like that. Every one of us had to empty out our vans. They, had to t- they, they, they took an inventory uh, of, of everything we had in there and packed it back in. And on the way back, they took it all out again and, and, and took that down what was sold. Mm-hmm. So after that, nobody wanted to go back down to Switzerland again. Gotcha. And it, that's, you know, that, that's <clears throat> also happening when you go to uh, the trophy next time when it happens. Uh, you'll see very little, uh, not very many Brits there because of the whole Brexit thing. Yeah. Because I was trying to get some uh, seaweed extract from uh, uh, Graham Potter because he was there every year. So I couldn't get it this year. So I, I wrote to him. I said, send me some of that seaweed extract. I said, I can't do it anymore because of the whole EU thing.
0: Yeah. 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 So there goes
1: their business, And there goes my seaweed extract. <laughs>
0: well, I mean... But but it is interesting that you say that you. So you you had uh, mentioned P.S. Who was the other gentleman you were going to mention, Reinhardt?
1: Uh I forget his full name, but he was. They they were they had a big fight together. I I don't want to get into the big fight. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. But uh, and, and Serge Kalamat also.
2: Yes. Yeah.
1: remember? He was he was sick for a few years. Uh, he had a bad allergy going. And then, I mean, he had the best communists that I've ever seen.
0: I never got to see that tree, but I always wanted to. Yeah, the first time I, d- I demonstrated at the trophy, I was on stage with Serge. He was, he was, yeah, we were demonstrators that same year. Uh, and he was a legend. Serge was a, was oh. a legend for me growing up, <laughs> and, you know, looking at. And
1: nicest guys you'll ever want.
0: Yeah, and, and probably one of the more powerful people. Uh, physically that I've ever been around.
1: Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> Definitely. Okay. Yeah. Sir
0: Serge is a hoss. He is a he is his a wife, hoss.
1: I think I think it's his ex wife now. Uh, she came from uh Dome Rep, Dominican Republic. Mm-hmm. And he'd he go out on a Yamadori tour with her and she would be the one who would find all the good trees
0: Interesting. Yeah.
1: That would be pound dog. <laughs> Interesting. Interesting. But you know, we can't get any more material out of Switzerland. That's the problem.
0: So from Switzerland, from Switzerland, did it move to Italy as the next hotbed?
1: Italy's the hotbed, really. Like with Maro and stuff like that, you know, those guys down there—that's the real hotbed. I mean, uh, if if you want to get anything good, then you got to go down to Arco to the uh, to the show down there, uh-huh. which happens early in, in May, June. They canceled it last year. Obviously, they moved it off this year into september but i quite honestly i don't think that's going to happen either yeah you know it's it's i wouldn't say it's the death of bonsai but it's certainly not helping things out
0: well but i think even it's interesting you know where 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 maro's at in italy and 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 i think you're seeing a change of a generation in italy as well right because you had salvatore uh as such a, a prominent figure and you had sort of that northern contingency with Valerio Giannotti and the collected material that he had. Um, and, and then you've, uh, there's obviously been a, a lot, a rich history of bonsai schools and bonsai instructors in Italy. But when it seemed, it seemed like my observations at the trophy is that Italy is starting to show more. I mean, Mauro's always there showing his work, uh, and it always occupies a very powerful you know sort of presence in the show but i think you are seeing a few more uh italians showing at the at the trophy whereas i think for a while they were kind of absent from that show and you really saw a lot of uh spanish work you saw a lot of um starting to see more dutch work again which is exciting uh so it's it's it, watching the this ebb and flow of of bonsai in europe and the changing over of these generations is int- is so fascinating
1: funny you're talking about Maro. Uh, I think Maro is really the one that got the Italians up here. Yeah. I and
0: mean, I, I think he's, I think he has been a huge uh, sort of bla- yeah. blast of the next generation of bonsai professional yeah. in, in Italy.
1: You know, they all want to sit, you know, the, the, Italians, you remember when we were in, Itali- in Italy doing the show down there. Yeah. I mean, it was kind of a closed group, you know, it was, I wouldn't say it was the mafia, but it was the Italian mafia down there, you know, the bonsai mafia. And I think Mauro wanted to break out of that yeah. and, and he wanted to do something else. Mauro's a businessman, without a doubt. He's a hundred percent businessman, but he's also a good, good bonsai artist. too. Yeah. He's yeah. one of the best. And uh, I think he's the one, when he came up to do the trophy, they all looked at him and said, Uh, We're not doing it. And then they saw how successful he was being up there at the trophy. And then they all said, I think we might want to get in on this bandwagon also. So I think he was the biggest influence for the the Italians to come up there.
0: Yeah. And I think just like his personality and his talent really kind of uh, showing what what seemed like a fairly um, devoted to a singular instructor, insular sc- sort of school structure in Italy, it seemed like Maro has really opened up the mentality of Italian bonsai as this as as again what, what seems to be a, a sort of this next generation uh, yeah. of, of, of Italian professional, and I mean obviously Maro is is at the top of the game. But uh, I, I think I think it's it has it has loosened up Italian bonsai a little bit and made it a little more available to the world than it than it has has been because, you know, unless you're going to UBI to get to a a place where you see a lot of Italian, you're talking about Arco. I've never been to Arco, but to, but to see Italian bonsai in in the perspective of a European bonsai exhibition, I didn't ever get to go to a Ginko Award, so I have no idea that, about the presence there. But I I do know at the trophy that I wish I really wish that there were more trees from Italy there because it it, it is a bonsai hotspot. I mean, you got Italy, you have Spain, and then you you kind of have uh, you know a lot of these other other countries making this generational shift and coming back to see Germany to see. Um, Holland and you know what Tunis Yon and some of those practitioners are doing there when it was such a (laughs) mega, mega location with Hatsumi Terakawa, you're seeing that next wave as well.
1: I think, I think what's also helping in this area also is, uh, you know, and and you're responsible for this also, (laughs) believe it or not, is when you do a demo it's the level of instruction that you pass along during the, de- doing the demo, not just doing a demo, not just styling a tree, but actually doing the instruction with it. Yeah. Because I, I know that here in Germany, I, I mean, watching a demo here in Germany, is like watching grass grow. <laughs> I mean, nobody's talking, you know, it's like, well, okay, this is the first branch, second branch, this is where I think I'm going to go for the apex. Uh, this is where the bar is, uh, Okay, then I'm gonna start wiring. And for the next two hours, you're sitting there watching somebody wiring, and nobody's saying anything. And you know, watching one of your demos or tomorrow or whatever, yeah, that's changed the, this whole aspect of, of of demos. And people are starting to get this idea. Uh, yeah, I think we need to do something here. Yeah, because you had that it, it, on one of your one of your I think one of your VSOP videos. Uh, you had told the audience, or you had said to the audience, uh, there's a big difference of European demos in comparison to the U.S. demos. And that is really an understatement. Yeah. It really is. Yeah, I'm glad you've come to Europe and done what you've done.
0: Well, I appreciate that. I really appreciate that. Yeah, I, I think uh, Bonsai, when I was uh, looking at... Um, Bonsai Europe before it became Bonsai Focus and then it became Bonsai Focus and uh, talking to people who came to the Ginkgos and and really kind of like looking at this demonstration model as I was witnessing it with a lot of, uh, you know, primarily Japanese professionals coming to headline the conventions in the early 2000s in North America. It was so inaccessible. It was so inaccessible to be a young Passionate bonsai. I, I mean, I was hungry. I was sleeping in the back of my truck to attend conventions. You're like a
1: instructor.
0: I mean, I exactly. I was. I was a vagabond. I was a bonsai vagabond. No to-
1: difference there. You're you just you are hungry. <laughs> you're hungry for it. You're not only hungry for food. You're hungry for the job also. You'll do anything.
0: Yeah, but but you're watching a demo and you're saying. I, I see this and I'm very fortunate to be able to see this, but what the hell are you doing? You know like when you walk away from a demo, what do you walk away with? Maybe inspiration or a new a new notion or bar of what's possible, but really the technique, the knowledge to keep it alive, the discussions of of what comes next to learn how to develop a tree, that stuff was not a part of demos and 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 really was is something that demos have the ability as controversial as they are, I do believe if it's handled, if a demo is handled correctly, has the ability to completely reframe a perspective about important information, you know, and and what's being shown there as, as a professional. So, anyways, I, I like the change, and I like listening to to demonstrators who who can educate. You know, I aspire to try and do that myself.
1: Positive aspect of, of the new the new way to do demos, really, yeah. not the old way. Uh, I don't remember, well, I mean, I, I've never, I wasn't into Bonsai into the States, but how were the demos then? Were there any demos at all? Yeah, sure. From John Naka, I guess. And
0: yeah. Yeah. And I and I never the, got to see John Naka demonstrate, but I think the demos typically tended to be uh, more or less silent, kind of uh, working on a tree type of demos, right? But all of that have, has to evolve. Had to evolve, has to evolve, you know? yeah
1: i mean uh basically since i've retired i live and breathe bonsai <laughs> i was gonna <laughs> I ask you
0: things. yeah you getting you getting pretty dirty in retirement
1: oh oh yeah yeah i live i live and breathe it you know i mean uh i've got two guys two students working with me and uh you know i, I keep telling them what 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 you say also uh i mean I, i've taken a lot of stuff from you believe it or not nice uh and given it farther because you know it the philosophy of it is it means so much to me. For example, uh styling a tree is maybe twenty percent. Eighty percent is is care and maintenance.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. It,
1: that's what a lot of people don't understand. Yep. And for example, your podcast with Ian uh was it Ian Hunter?
0: Yeah, on the soil nutrition.
1: Yeah, the soil nutrition. I mean, I've, I've listened to the third part of that at least five times.
0: Yeah, <laughs> and I
1: had it on podcast in the car, and my girlfriend said, "It's kind of nerdy, isn't it?" <laughs>
0: and the answer is yes. Yes, we are weirdos.
1: And it is. Yes. Yeah. And proud. <laughs> and, is, and proud. Yes. But you know, if if you if you want to get farther in this whole situation, you've got to dive into it because. Like, like you have said numerous times, you know, the tree itself is the mirror of what's going on in the pot.
0: Yeah. Yep.
1: And I, I've seen more people come into my workshops and say, oh, what's wrong with this tree? Uh, you know, this is brown and the needles are getting brown or this and that, you know, and have you done anything to the roots? Right. Have you even thought about doing that? Yeah. And most of the time the answer is no.
0: Yeah, the the biggest discovery I've had over ten years at Marai is is that if you are not proactive with the root system, and I mean proactive in terms of just really that being the number one area of the tree that you focus your efforts on, cleaning off the topsoil, you know, and managing the surface of the root system over the course of time really accurate watering, soil utilization, fertilization, and supplemental nutrition. If you do those things, you avoid most of the fungal and pest issues that exist in bonsai and are able to accomplish the greatest amount of aesthetic evolution. I mean, period. Yeah, because
1: I, I, I went to a guy's house last week to look at some of his trees. I, he does a workshop with me once in a while, and it was... 25 degrees outside air temperature, and he's got all this stuff in a greenhouse still with this, no shade around it. And I said, "Do you feel comfortable in here?" And he said, "No, it's hot." I said, "What do you think the trees feel?" Mm-hmm. And then you take them out, this big change. What What do you think is? I mean, people don't, you know, they don't engage their brains a lot of times. I've, I've noticed they they just they read a book, well, A, B, that's that happens to, to be a lot of problems here in, in the area that I'm at. I've noticed that when I was when I was still flying. I mean, I had all German co-pilots, and they could they learn everything. It's actually instilled in them. They learn everything by rote. Mm-hmm. So you give them a book, test them on it, and and they'll tell you two weeks later. Well, yeah, that was on page three hundred and twenty-five, bar five or something like that. Right. But if something else happens out of the ordinary, they don't know how to deal with that, and that that's a big problem here. Mm-hmm. I feel like that's that's, I,
0: I feel like it's a big problem in bonsai in general. But I also think, to be to be thinking about bonsai on on the level of really interpreting trees is to be around a lot of trees all the time. You know, that's yeah. a that's a learned language. It's a learned I think bonsai as a practice is a learned practice. And you know, whether somebody's going to dive to the depths where 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 we you know, they reach some sort of capacity to interpret their trees accurately or whether they never get there, I think that's where you see really phenomenal collections over the course of time proving out as as one of the greatest demonstrations of bonsai skill not the immediate product of a demonstration right i think that's exposure i think that's inspiration and i think that can be pivotal singular chunks of information in that in that moment but it's like when you see a bonsai collection worked out over 40 years that is phenomenal and the evolution of the trees has been traced and it's and it's prominent and uh and you recognize the skill that goes into that i think that's bonsai on the highest level
1: yeah 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 and 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 not only that but uh you know what 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 is failing here is this this proactive you got to be proactive and not reactive here Mm -hmm. you know in 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 this type of climate where where i'm living right now you've got to know what you're doing and you've got to learn I mean, I've been living here now 11 years and I'm, God, I'm still learning every day. You know, something, something new is coming up, you uh-huh. know, with the, with the weather and, and the problem that is also, uh, you know, we've gotten a lot hotter over the summertime now. So we've gotten, uh, we've got an infestation in the last couple of years of uh, red bites, the red spider mites, mm-hmm. and they moved up all the way from Italy. Where it was warm down there, now it's getting warm up here. So you get the red spider mites up here, and that's you know how horrible they are. And that's also a big problem with the EU. Uh, I don't know how it is in the states, but when I when I was in when I was in uh, going back and forth to California, I used to go into garden center buy anything that I could possibly get a nuclear bomb. <laughs> yeah, right, but the bombs to make the bombs. But you can't get those bombs over here.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's not a bad thing. That's not a bad. You, you know, they're trace, tracing a lot of bodily harm to those. Uh, you know, yeah, you can't mega get any copper
1: fungicide or anything like that. So, what I keep teaching people is you've got to be proactive, especially with fungus. Mm-hmm. Fungus is once you get a fungus here, trying to get rid of that is like, yeah, you could almost, you yeah. know, yeah. So my from my experience on the whole thing is take care of it first be proactive instead of being reactive with it you know and that's that's problem that i that i see a lot of them you know with with greenhouses here there's there's a lot of greenhouse problems yeah yeah
0: i bet the transition is so dramatic right
1: yeah and the humidity you go in there the humidity is, is really high and you, you can see just the fungus traveling around in the air it's just ridiculous yeah uh, i'm sure you built yours pretty well
0: well i tried i mean i think you know a greenhouse is a living environment much like a garden is a living environment and and there's a lot of different ways to 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 sort of uh skin a cat when it comes to constructing a greenhouse so it's my it's my second greenhouse uh on site and i tried to improve upon the first one and there were benefits to the first one uh, and some, uh, you know, downfalls, and and there's benefits to the new one, and there's some some problems as well. It's like, uh, you know, but you learn to manage it, just like an environment. There's never an ideal. You could you could spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on a greenhouse and still have problems. Uh, you know, yeah. You can't oh, yeah. you well, can't perfect everything.
2: Yeah,
1: I, I got a buddy that's got a greenhouse attached to his house. It's a nice greenhouse with, you know, automatic windows on there, the whole thing, and, and to get some air in there, but he's always got a fungus problem going, you know? It's just, you know, and, and he just won't take care of it. That's the problem, you know? You yeah. just, you got to solve, if you, if that's your problem, you got to solve the situation.
0: Man. Yep, yep. Yeah, you got to do something about it. I mean, I think in, in bonsai, it's always, bonsai seems to be a practice that's always testing your 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 willingness to, to to work that much harder you know i feel like there's a, a sentiment in don't be yeah well, the, you i lazy. Yeah, i just don't think you can be lazy you you can be lazy and you can get by but if you really want your trees to excel you got to be you got to be working hard it's a, it's a it's a it's a again it's part of that dedication like um and i and i respect that about the art form a lot that you do have to constantly be working hard. I mean, certainly at Marai, the moments where we've gotten behind the curve, uh, it, it could be directly correlated to not being proactive. You know, and proactivity isn't always the most comfortable thing to 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 have a notion yeah. that something is going wrong. To learn to cu- trust that instinct inside of your gut, and then to do something about it. To know what to do about it. Uh, to to understand how you handle that situation. I mean, that it's just a real complex equation to do it well and to do it with a large number of species across different stages of development, across different native soil types in that, you know, it's like, wow, but, but damn, what a, what a worthwhile thing because it's, it's just phenomenal. We're sitting here talking, you know, you as a, a professional pilot having sort of, traveled the world and and managed bonsai from afar a, a lot and now sitting getting to sit with it every day uh me as a professional just you know it's such a such a um versatile and rich subject matter bonsai is and the people that it attracts and what it demands of us
1: well uh i mean i i've noticed my trees since i've retired they have really improved 100 times better i I have to imagine yeah yeah since you know i i'm here every day i take care of my you know watering is sort of a meditative thing with me anyway yeah and when i'm out there watering in the morning uh i'm I'm looking at every tree what's going on here and and, you know i can react to it immediately and some people just don't want to do that but that's part of it that's whole that's the part of the that's part of this whole system like we're saying 80% 80% is maintenance. And, yep. you know, they just want to, a lot of people just want to, they'll style a tree and then they'll just leave it there. That's it. And I've seen, you know, how many trees have you seen that have been styled and where the wire's been left on it for five years, you know, growing sure. in. Sure. Uh, and that's, that's just, I, I mean, I'm not going to say that I don't have wire growing in on some portions of trees, but at least I can take care of it now. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: When it happens. Yeah. I you know what's interesting uh is I'm here every day as a bone type professional and and still keeping ahead staying ahead of things is uh is a learned practice. I mean like Japan is so it's one thing that I that I have never been able to totally understand about the apprenticeship model is Japan is so regimented. Um, you know, the bonsai gardens down there are so regimented that there is just a, such a built in understanding of the seasonal work and what's going to be demanded and the labor that it takes. You know, Mr. Kramura, 30 years into his career, when I started my apprenticeship, really had things pretty worked out. You know, he had things pretty worked out and that's 30 years on top of his 11 year apprenticeship, uh, and the time in between. Those things, and so it's like it takes time. It takes a lot of time to work out the nuances and figure out how you incorporate those as ingrained actions and behaviors. You know, like the the quantification of bonsai master, which is like this really confusing Western uh, way to try and describe the proficiency of of the Japanese professional. Uh, and I think it's you know generationally. I think you're seeing a generational transition in Japan right now too, which is you know generally that causes well, a, a shift in the current.
1: Do you feel that your your training was more of a militaristic way.
0: Well, I th- no, I, well, I don't know, you know, but I think I think we I I saw Mr. Kamura's work. I said I want to learn what you have to teach you specifically, your work, your design, your technique, uh, and. The way that that was taught to me was through integrating into the system over 30 plus years he had perfected. But but to try and quantify that, to say, you know, bonsai master uh, and to understand that, I think is more a quantification of the, that time that's been invested in, in the yeah. practice to work out all of those nuances. Like I caught Mr. Kimura at the 30 year mark. You know, I I didn't I, I didn't live through the first ten years of just you know rambunctious inspiration and probably quite a bit of failure mixed in for him to learn. You know, that I didn't engage with him in the second ten years where he had all of the education of his first ten years and was more mature in his approach to design and was really working on the prominent famous. Oh, we, all, we all absolutely, and then and then you have this sort of you know next ten years which. I, I did get to witness his sort of what I saw as a very major transition in his approach. It, but you see it across bonsai cultures. You're seeing it in Europe. You're seeing it in the independent countries in Europe. You're seeing it at the major European exhibitions that are like the greatest hits of Europe. It's just like pretty, pretty awesome to look at all the ways that these trees are time capsules.
1: What, what, I, what I what I think is, is lacking, though, in the whole bonsai schooling situation here is, is uh People don't want to put that much into it Mm. that that I find lately. I mean, when I was learning Bonsai, uh, I had a teacher and he was 200 miles away from me. And I would go there on Friday and come home on Sunday every week. Yeah. Four times after work, whatever. And uh, people don't want to put up with that anymore. You know, they're, they're not willing to do that, but Hey, here's a guy who's teaching me for free. He had, three other students. We were a team together and uh, we did demos and we did shows and whatever. And th- that was the best way for me to learn. I mean, he was a tough teacher also. Mm-hmm. Uh, but younger, I, I, I had the feeling that a lot of younger people just don't want to put up with that. Anymore, you know, but I think that's, that's one of the best ways to learn also like you did with Mr. Kumura.
0: Yeah. 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 I I, 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 I wouldn't, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have wanted to do it any other way. I couldn't have done it no. any other way, and I wouldn't have wanted to do it any other way. But I, there, there is like a necessity to acknowledge culture and the world is changing, and 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 the expectations, the mobility, the pace of life, all of those things are causing a major shift in in the way people engage with and pursue endeavors or passions or uh, vocations. You know, and I think bonsai has to follow has to continue to be malleable, you know, because I think the value of the medium is so is so potent and pertinent to current themes and trends in the world that if we're not continuing to adapt and offer it in a way that makes it accessible, I, th- I think you do lose, lose something in the lack of cultivation of those generations that are going to pick up, you know, when there's a lull in the action, when you see one generation uh, reach sort of the end of their contributions or the the end of their powerful contributions and they take a more supportive backseat, you got to have that next generation coming. And that's an investment. That's definitely an investment. I think that's where the bonsai clubs are trying to figure out how to stay alive and those that have figured it out have thrived. You know, I think online education, you're seeing that become a major tool in bonsai. I don't know. You know, who knows what's right? Who knows what's going to be successful and who knows where it has to advance moving forward? But there definitely is a call to evolve uh as the world changes i mean i
1: i just i'm 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 thankful that that we still have the trophy going on oh
0: absolutely right
1: after 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 mark left you know the i don't want to get into what happened there big big nothing to do there but uh christian and those guys the the bonsai club in, in belgium they're you know and danny you know, I'm, I'm glad Danny stepped in also. Oh, with the- yeah. Mm-hmm. If, if not, the bonsai scene would really be lost here, I think, in, in the northern part of Europe.
0: Yeah, I, we'll look at what Fred and Stephanie are doing down in Solu. You know, I mean, that's really, Salyu's really picked up as another as another branch. Uh, and, and although the trophy in Salyu are happening at the same time, if the trophy for whatever ceased to happen, just like when the Ginkgo stopped and the trophy rose, right? if the trophy stopped, would, would saliu then become the singular event? Would there be an Italian or a Spanish exhibition? Who knows? But I will say this. The trophy has been a powerful, powerful force in Europe. That has been a oh. really monumental exhibition.
1: It has. I mean, before, you know, in the beginning, there was the big competition between the Letters Trophy and Ginkgo. And then Danny stopped that. Danny moved out to, to Spain and then came back up and, and then took over the trophy. Uh, I, I, I'm just, I just hope it, it, nobody loses interest because, I mean, how many, how many thousands of people do they get over a weekend there? I mean, it's just absolutely incredible. People yeah. are coming from all of them.
0: Yeah. Yeah, no, it's it, it's it's as highly, if not more, attended than a Kokfu exhibition at this point. I would say I don't know what, actually. I need to be careful saying that because I don't know what the general public attendance at the Kokfu is these days. But certainly, the Boneside community shows up in, in the largest population I've seen in any event in the world for, for the trophy.
1: You know what? What I was uh, <laughs> I was really amazed. One of my one of my trips there to, uh, to the Kofu when I when I was still flying. I was coming back into Tokyo with the train, and I had—I don't know what—I bought a tree. I don't know what it was, and I had it on my lap. I'm sitting next to a woman, and she spoke English, Japanese woman. She said, "What is that?" I said, "Well, that's a bonsai." Oh, that's a bonsai, and I was amazed at how many people in Japan have no idea really what bonsai is.
0: Oh wow, huh?
1: That that was astounding to me. You know, I I thought this is the culture here. Yeah. But, you know, a lot of, I guess a lot of the younger people don't really want to deal with that either.
0: I don't know. I don't know if they want to deal with it so much as, is they may, they may not have the accessibility to it in the way that they, you know, like there's, there's a, there's a pretty steadfast uh, set in its ways approach to bonsai in Japan. That I think is probably proving to be counterproductive, although I don't know, you know, like I think the museum in Omiya has been super fruitful. Obviously, the kokufu is always a public uh, piece of engagement. But I think like um, there are there are some bonsai professionals in Japan that are trying to, to break outside of the mold and are and are having success with it. I mean, I don't know. I don't know, you know, what Masashi Harao's more performative pieces. I don't know what impact those have had. Um, but certainly it's interesting to see what he's doing and see how he's, he's sort of breaking free of the, of the established, very rigid boundaries of the shokunin culture of bonsai in Japan and the client, you know, sort of client, uh, professional relationship that, that seems to be very potentially challenging. It's just, a. uh, whether it will have the success and create the accessibility or not and what that will do over the course of time will be interesting. But, but I think you're even seeing evolution in Japan at the moment.
1: Yeah, I've, I've got a good question for you, Brian. <clears throat> and it, this is from a, a lot of people here in Europe. We're, we're all wondering that. Why do you never see a large at the Cocoa I,
0: You know what? I, I cannot tell you for the life of me. I have, I have no... Idea. I have no idea, and I even think you very, very. There's sh- got to
1: be art there somewhere.
0: Yeah. Well, the Japanese larch came from somewhere, right? I'm I'm pretty yeah. sure it's. Uh, I don't think it's just a a common name association. I am relatively certain that the Japanese larch is is singularly, uh, you know, sourced from Japan, and yet, yeah, in the exhibitions you do not see them. Um, and I think their hemlock, the Komitsuga, is also one that you don't see as much of for all of the interesting Komitsuga that exist. I have no idea. I have no idea, Gil. I really have never been able to figure that one out for myself.
1: <laughs> just, just always amazed me. Every time I've even gone to the Green Club, I thought, ah, I know I'll find one here. Nah, no way. Yeah. i never seen one.
0: Mr. Kimura had one. One in the back of his garden that a client had brought him long ago and had never come and picked back up. It was subpar quality at best. It was so neglected and just thought poorly of. When I came back to the United States, you know, my notion of Larch, because I'd sort of... It I had been trained to more or less neglect this tree. We kept it alive and we pruned it once a year, and that was about all we did to that poor tree. Uh, but I just thought, larch, why? You know, uh, why are people interested in them? Why are they? Why are they not more practiced with in Japan? It must be a fault, or no? They might be the greatest species for bonsai that's ever existed. It's like. The meshing between deciduous and conifer, vigor and representation of age. It's like, what more do you want in a species?
1: They're perfect. They're perfect. I've, I've got a lot of I mean, most of the time you get larges up here with, with where I'm at. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you get a, a pretty quick uh, uh, styling on there. I mean, they're, they're easy trees to work on if yeah. you know what you're doing. Yeah,
0: yeah. Yeah, I don't and, know. And I it, don't know. It's beyond me.
1: Right? If you treat them right, you know, use, the progress is pretty quick.
0: Maybe it's too easy. I don't know. Why don't they cultivate precumbens junipers? They have beautiful collected precumbens in Japan. And and I think everybody kind of looks at it and they're just like, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what to tell you. It's it's a it's something that I I never was able to figure out, but um but I certainly am glad that Europe, I think larches specifically in europe were really uh were really explored and the aesthetic got out you know it got out into the world and then i think nick linds and some of the you know northeastern bonsai practitioners in north america started finding the native larches and and finding really good material and that got out and you know in the in the in the western boneside practice the larch is a backbone. And, and, I'm, and I'm really happy and, and glad that it is because it's such a wonderful species.
1: Yeah, I mean, my you know larches, you know, I, I tell everybody, just keep them outside. Just don't worry about it. I, they'll, they'll take up to minus 20 degrees here. It doesn't matter, you know. And it's, yeah. mm-hmm. it's a native tree. Right. You can't go wrong. You can't go wrong with it. I've had very few larches that, that collapsed on me. Yeah. Very few in comparison to other stuff, you know. Uh, but, uh, I mean, you've got a good collection of larches, you know, lyrics, uh, but I've, I've never, I've never seen anything there in, uh, in Japan. Never.
0: Yeah. 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 I don't know. Interesting. Super interesting. Yeah. And, and, and maybe, who knows, M- maybe the next generation in Japan will cultivate larch or find value in it. I have no idea, you know, but, yeah. but, but the, the, the. Uh, undeniable is that things are going to continue to change and evolve and and uh, you know that applies to bonsai as well i think the physiology has been really one of the more recent frontiers for bonsai practice and it might be something that they worked out in japan generations ago and then that sort of practice you know has been applied and perfected and applied and perfected and it's something that we're just getting to You know, when you think about handling the tree and the tree being exciting, and then you become aware of the ceramic vessel almost after the tree, and then you become aware of display after the ceramic vessel, and then the exhibitions start to evolve, and then the level of the tree evolves, and the level of ceramic evolves, it's like you see this, like, um, accumulation, and I think... The physiology, how do you horticulturally achieve that kind of really the bar that Japan set in terms of refinability, etc. And what contributes to that in terms of soils and nutrition. It's like all of that. We've been catching up for a very long time and, and obviously still are. But I think with the quality of trees you're seeing that are made in Europe, that are made in North America now, it's like, okay, now now we're things things are not completely understood, but getting worked out. We're figuring it out.
1: Yeah, I think what people are also starting to understand at least here in Germany is, uh, you know, there's, there's not a, a, one pure for the entire situation. For for example, soil mixture or whatever, you know, use what works best for you. You know, here's the basics, the three different mixes that you need, use the best that works for you. What I use up here in my area, the guy down, down in the Valley can't use the same thing. There's, it's two totally different mixes, you know. Mm-hmm. You'll, you'll if you use my mix, you'll probably kill his tree, and vice versa. You yeah. know
0: that that is a, this has always been something that's fascinated me about uh, bonsai in Europe is is the is is the general sort of commitment to that kind of diversity and necessity to adapt the knowledge, and that is something that you hear across all of Europe. You know, I think in yeah. in North America we do there do tend to seem to be some steadfast components in terms of soil and the way of thinking about soil that, that has a very general, I think a general success associated with its application. And I wonder what is, because we have microclimates and we definitely have a very diverse geographic span from North to South and East to West in North America. Um, and so I wonder I wonder where that nuance of Europe necessitating a lot more nuanced soil to have the success, to the degree that it's either life or death, success or failure. I've always been very curious about that, but I don't contest that it exists. I mean, Europe is a very interesting landmass. and, and oh, yeah. Yeah. And so to see that kind of microclimate-specific knowledge and information has always fascinated me.
1: I mean, I... I... <clears throat> for for a couple of years, uh, I mean, a lot of people were getting away from, from Akadama here
0: mm-hmm.
1: because we had a bad run on, or, or a run on bad Akadama. Mm-hmm. And I remember I, I got some myself and I had to do an emergency repotting right in the middle of summer. It was just, it was concrete hard. You know, it's it just all coagulated. And uh, so a lot of people were getting away from Akadama. But, uh, you know, now we've been getting better quality. So th- that's, that's kind of what, kind of gone by the wayside now. But, uh, y- you know, you don't see a lot of work. Matter, matter of fact, you don't see any workshops on repotting. No. They're all, all styling workshops. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's, that is what is, is really, that's fallen by the wayside here or hasn't even evolved here, evolved here. It's just all styling. And like we said before, 20% is styling. The rest is all maintenance and repotting. And yeah. The rest is stuff. That, and that's what, that's what people need to get more of a grip on here is the repotting situation. I don't disagree. Do yep. And, and uh, that's what I'm trying to integrate actually in my workshops also is a little bit more of that. That's, I think that's an important factor. Work from the ground up.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Basically, yep. you know, yep. but, you know, when, when you, when a guy comes for a workshop, you know, they'll say, well, we want to, no, we don't want to do that yet. Let's, let's see what's going on here. Mm-hmm. Now is an opportune time to see what's going on. And then, you know, by the time they work, walk away from the workshop, they've, they've learned something then, which is, it's not just styling. They've learned what to do down below. Yeah. And that, that's, that's a good percentage of the work there. But nobody's giving
0: that. Yeah, yeah. For an instructor, a repotting workshop would be the biggest nightmare I could ever fathom. Uh, Yeah. Because every (laughs) every single you know, with repotting, trying to establish a a a consistency, you do you know, you apply structural wire first and set your primary bandages, and then you work from the bottom up, secondary, tertiary, in the styling and design. Boom! You can execute this with a, a number of people in a singular workshop. I'm going to work on this specific root system and this specific nuance and this specific root system, and I'm going to do that across the board in a workshop. is really challenging. Repotting is the intimate is is the most intimate moment I think you have with a tree, because you're just you're just in the in the middle of its life force, right? It's 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 make so or I've break.
1: Done a of, you've done a lot of stuff with, with, as far as repotting, you know, demos or, or workshops. I mean. The last one you did at the trophy where you stood outside you know yeah. you did you did the whole uh, what, wasn't really a demo it was really a, 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 a yeah a seminar a on, discussion on yeah.
2: mm-hmm.
1: that sabina juniper uh, i remember one of your bsop series was also on soil science and and, and, and repotting you know that, that's really the most interesting part of the whole situation yeah to understand going down what's going on down there yeah that's
0: where it lives i i I completely agree and i think to recognize that that is what sets you up for success in the styling and design process that you don't get a good upper canopy without a solid root system existing first you know you just appreciate when you and and let's just be really honest Uh, in terms of root growth we are not entitled to root growth And the bonsai container makes it hard to get root growth, right? The the, the lack of gravity acting on that soil column is a huge impediment to growth. It's what allows us to control pace. But you have to earn that root mass. And so when you hit it, for me, repotting season, when I hit it and I see a root mass that I pull a tree out, I'm repotting it, and it is just absolutely on point, that's a bigger victory than any styling and design session I've ever had
1: yeah yeah i mean pull, pulling a tree out of a pot and, and just looking at all the new root structure there it's just wow you know yeah. it's, <laughs> it's just incredible you know but uh no that, that, that's all part of it you know and i just i just hope I'm, like i said i'm 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 just glad i'm done with the flying and i could concentrate more on, on my trees and, and my students and things like that uh because it was really tough uh flying and 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 having to manage that all at the same time.
0: You did it you though.
1: Know, you, you, yeah, you do it, but I mean it's a lot easier now. Yeah. You and uh like I said before also with the with the with the whole COVID thing, the flying is not getting any easier because uh I know my uh the guys that I, that I used to work with, they haven't been laid off or or fired or anything like that. They still have their jobs. But what they'll do is, is they'll fly a couple of weeks a month, have another couple of months off and then go back into the simulator because we, we've got a problem there. We've got to keep current. We have to have three, land, three landings and takeoffs within 90 days. Yeah. To keep current. Otherwise you've got to do the whole school all over again.
0: Oh no. Thank you. That's terrible.
1: What you guys end up having to do is go, go into the simulator. Everybody's under a mask. You're under a mask. First officers under a mask. Instructors under a mask. You do four hours of simulator, and 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 then get out, and then you're then you're pretty much current again. And then you go fly, and then you're off for another couple of months, and then you got to go do the whole thing again. Oof, right. And, so, and it, it's, it's tough because uh, you you're not current in your mind anymore. You know, it, it, I wouldn't say it's like riding a bicycle but pretty damn close (laughs) yeah yeah
2: yeah yeah that's funny Gil it's it's it's
0: it's 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 been it's been so cool to sit down and talk with you about your journey I had no idea you know as much as we've talked I had no idea uh that you were that you have have experienced so much and been um you know, kind of in in the middle of a lot of transitions globally, whether it's on a world scale mil, mil, military or whether it's you know looking at the microcosm of boneside, pretty badass
1: oh yeah, this well this uh, one short story, this this one uh, cargo company I was working for uh, in the states out of Miami, Southern Air Transport. I don't know if you ever heard of them before uh, they, that used to be the old air America so if you heard about Air America with Vietnam,
0: right, 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 right
1: that there was, there was the yeah, Air America was sold because it had a bad name with, uh, with the CIA, and then it turned into a private company. And we're the ones that did the whole Iran Contra thing. Going, <laughs>
0: <laughs> this is this is this is uh, part two. This is going to be part two. We need to circle back to that because I want to know more about it. I am. Uh, uh, I am, I am being beckoned by a garden that needs water and care. What's your te- just quickly, what's
1: your temperature there
0: now? We'll be 64 today. So what is the 64 degrees, 22 degrees Celsius today?
1: Uh, perfect.
0: perfect. It's, it's, it's like magic. This is why people live in Oregon. Uh, everything's budding out. All the deciduous. I'm trying to get wired before they leaf out. We're finishing up repotting. We're building the garden. Just going ham. Just
1: quick. Daughter, my daughter spent two years in Portland uh, as an au pair. Oh, nice! I went, to vi- I, I went to visit her one time there, and I saw all these rain boots there in front of the house. I said, <laughs> "I pointed to them." She says, "Oh yeah, you got to have a pair here." <laughs> and I found out why the next day. It was just it, the two weeks I was there. It just pissed out oh, yeah. every day. Oh yeah, um, it's real. So Everything green though, green as hell. But I mean.
0: It's green. It's green, but you pay the price for green. <laughs> you got to invest.
1: And all you repotting done?
0: No, we're still at it. Actually, Troy and Kaufman are, are pulling trees out of pots right now that I'm going to go hit when we're done here. But I, I'm looking at a sunny garden and, uh, and I'm going to bid you adieu. I appreciate you joining us and let's pick it up with part two.
1: Okay, yeah, I, I definitely want to do that with you and uh, get back into some, some flying experiences there. You know, <laughs> I would love it. I would
0: love it. And we didn't ever actually uh, cover the experience at the UBI together, so we, we really should circle back to that.
1: Yeah, we need to circle back to that one again. Good. All right, right. well, you have a good day and say hello to everybody for me, and, and we'll get back with it again.
0: Yeah, I look forward to it, Gil. Thanks a bunch, man. Take care.
1: And thanks for having me. Okay, bye-bye.
0: Pleasure was mine.